following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Perhaps you've had the experience of being slandered and rebuked and reproached by a person who was wicked and spiritually inferior to you. You children made me remember the story of King David when he had to flee from Absalom. He was going out from Jerusalem. There was a man named Shimei who walked along a hill above King David who was fleeing for his life from a rebellion of his own son. Shimei was a descendant of Saul. He took this occasion to curse David with slander, lies, and to throw rocks at him. One of David's generals, Abishai, remember, wanted to slay Shimei. But David said, no, my own son has turned against me. How do I know that God is not through him rebuking me? That was an important lesson that David learned and modeled for us. Later, in justice, Shimei would be dealt with. But at this point, David realized that he needed to hear what God would say to him, even through the cursing of an enemy. Now that is something of what Job now is decrying in chapter 30, verses 1 through 15. And this is something that some of you have already experienced. I think I've, in this pulpit, told the story of the time when I was uh, still in, uh, about a senior in college doing youth ministry in Meridian, Mississippi. And a, a guy whose brain was fried with LSD is at my door. I didn't know, I knew of him. He didn't know me. But he stands at my door, he curses me, and he accuses me of being a hypocrite. Actually, he was sent by God. I was, in some ways, being a hypocrite. And rather than say, no, you have nothing to say to me. The Spirit blessed that to me. And that will happen to us uh, when God uh, allows our enemies to curse us in that fashion. And it is going to happen. It's going to happen to you men who are in, going into ministry or in ministry or elders in the church. It's going to happen to all of us uh, to some degree or another. And so we look at this part of Job's speech. This is the middle part of his last speech. We began last week in chapter 29, where Job says, I'm going to give you another proverb. This is wisdom literature. And in chapter 29, he shows how, in the, as it reflects on the past, how God blessed him spiritually with communion and rich fellowship. And how out of that, not only material blessings, but Job then used his blessings to serve his neighbor. And he, he took delight in thinking about what he had been able to accomplish as a private person and as a magistrate. But even in the middle of that speech, you remember, he says, oh, but I thought that would last forever. It didn't last forever, did it? This brings him now to chapter 30, where he does not reflect on the past, but now he reflects on the reality of his sufferings. And he shows us a new element of his sufferings that we've not seen before. We know all of the physical affliction, the loss of property and, and family. Uh, we know the attacks of his friends, the loss of his health. And above all, we've seen the, the, the awful horror that he thought God had turned against him. But now, heaped on all of that, 
like kicking a person who's already down, uh, God allows these wicked men to come and persecute Job. Now, what does that teach you and me? I think it's this reality that God does allow the wicked to persecute the righteous. And God allows the wicked to persecute the righteous even in the midst of affliction. So we'll consider two things unpacking this point. The character of the persecutors and the acts of the persecutors. Well, in verses 1 through 8, we are, have the character of these men who stand against Job. Um, notice he begins in verse 1, but now, you see the contrast? He's been this gloriously respected magistrate. He comes to the gate of the city and the young back away. They, in a sense, want to hide from him. The, the elders stand in his presence. The nobles and, the, and the, the princes of the people are silent in Job's presence. But now, he says, in this present situation, those that are younger than I am mock me. No longer are they standing in the back, not wanting to be seen, let alone heard in the presence of Job. No, now they mock him. But what makes it really bad is the character of these. These were not the sons of the noble that would gather at the gate of the city. No, these were wicked and evil people. Uh, Job shows us three things about this class of persecutor. They were contemptible, and they were uh, irresponsible, and they were outcast. He first shows us they were contemptible, 1B and 2. They mock me, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. Indeed, what good was the strength of their hands to me? Vigor had perished from them. So he thinks about these young men. These are not the sons of noble. These are the sons of a class of people that their fathers, Job said, I would not even let them keep my sheepdogs. I would never let them work with my sheepdogs to, to watch over my flock. They had no usefulness uh, uh, to him whatsoever. Because of their lifestyle, they had no strength or vigor. So he speaks to their fathers as those who, they had no strength. Uh, their vigor had perished from them. In other words, this was a contemptible class of people that now even their sons begin to rise up and to mock Job. Next he tells us that they're irresponsible. Verses 5 and 4. From want and famine they are gaunt, who gnaw the dry ground by night and waste and desolation, who pluck mallow by the bushes, and whose food is the root of the broom shrub. These people cannot even provide for themselves. They cannot do an honest day's work in order to put food on the table. They're absolutely um, irresponsible in their lifestyle. And so what comes upon them is lack. They don't even have the basics of life. Uh, they are in, as those who would live uh, under a famine. They have no bread. They have no nourishment. They're gaunt. They're, they're, the flesh is shriveled up. They're like walking skeletons. And they gnaw the ground. They're like a dog who's gnawing a bone, just doesn't let go of it. It's a dry ground. And, and, and it's not so much by night, but in the gloom of their waste and desolation. 
They're abjectly, abjectly starving to death. And so what do they eat? As they crawl along the ground looking for something to eat, well, they pluck mallow, which we see are probably a plant of the salt marshes. The leaf would have been salty and, and completely um, un, unsavory. Uh, or the root of the broom tree, which is a very bitter root. And that would have been their food. They could not provide for themselves. They were absolutely irresponsible. And thus, they're out here in the wilderness, eking some kind of subsistence out of salt marsh plants and roots of tree. But why? Why are they out there? We'll see in the third place that they're outcasts. Verses 5 through 7, they are driven from the community. They, the community, shout against them as against a thief. So they dwell in dreadful valleys, in holes of the earth and of rocks. And among the bushes they cry out, are bray, and under the nettles they are gathered together. What we see now, this class of people, have actually been driven from normal society. People in the towns wanted nothing to do with them. They were no better than thieves. They would sneak around. They would steal from your barn or your garden or even from your house. Job himself as a magistrate would have been behind their being sent as outcasts from the community. And so what, where do they live? They live out in the desert. Dreadful valleys or wadis that are full of water in the spring and dry and barren rest of the time are holes of the earth and of the rocks. They'd find a cave and there they would take their family. Or, even more miserable, under the nettles they are gathered together. Now, uh, the nettles could be the nettle. And if you've never been stung by a nettle, you've never been stung. (laughs) We've been stung by nettles in England and it's worse than a bee bite. Uh, But nettles probably don't grow tall enough off the ground um, for any kind of shelter. But it's some kind of thorn bush that would stick and hurt. That was the existence of these people who were outcast of society. And they cry out. And the word is the brain of a wild ass, a donkey. They're there in their misery, cut off from the human race. And he summarizes them then as a class of people. It's translated fools, but notice it's the sons of fools. Without a name. Now this is a class of people. This is a subculture. And they were scourged from the land. Now as we read Job's description, the Spirit would have us to recognize the awfulness of what he is experiencing as a dignified magistrate as a man of nobility, as a man who didn't look with contempt on the poor. Um, Now to have this class of people to to rise up against him. But I want you to think a bit about this class of people because they were not unique in Job's day. In fact, because they've actually been in the midst of the human race throughout the history of the human race. In the South, we call them white trash. Faulkner would write about them in the three volumes of the Snopes family. The things that he would write. He could have had Job in front of him as he described this subclass of people. But they're throughout history. Um, we go to South Africa and there are these uh, uh, 
shanty towns that people put together when they, they live in absolute abject poverty. They do have their TV satellites, but otherwise um, it's abject poverty. Uh, or think of a country like Haiti that made a covenant with Satan. And what we read here is actually the condition of the great majority of the people in that country. Now, we don't say this to look down on them uh, with content, but with compassion. But we need to recognize that this is a class of people in the cultures of the earth. And it's a class of people that the government cannot help. In fact, all the government programs have only accentuated, exaggerated, and made their existence worse. Because there is no responsibility. They have made wrong decisions and their lives are disordered. Now I say this in the first place that you and I might recognize that uh, God has redeemed us. He saved us from disordered lives. Those of us that were not reared in covenant households. Uh, I hope that you look back and, and think about the reality. I, I shudder at what I would have become. By the root, I knew what was already in me when I was converted. And some of you also would have become uh, like these people who made wrong decisions. And the streets of our cities of San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York are full of this class of people who were there because they have deliberately made wrong decisions. Now, I have great compassion for their children. There we see the negative covenant taking place. And that breaks our hearts. And we do want to take the gospel to such people. But you cannot help them materially until they come under the law of God and the gospel and their lives begin to be ordered. And before you were converted, your life also was disordered. Maybe you had not sunk into this kind of social outcast, but you know the decisions you made. You might even be very wealthy, uh, prosperous, and you made decisions that always had bad consequences for you and other people. And in your conscience, you were like those wallowing on the ground and gnawing on salty leaves and roots. God had mercy on you and brought you out of that. And you praise Him. But also recognize then that when God saves us, it's not just out of the disorder of sin. It's out of disordered lives. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I've walked in the streets of a parish in Peru. Dirt streets. Great poverty. And suddenly, here's a little house. It's just like all the other mud houses. And yet the the yard is just neat and a few flowers there. You know what that? More than likely that's a Christian who lives in the same poverty as the others but who had a new heart and a love for God thus a love for what is beautiful. A love for order. Recognizing that God is a God of order. And I just want you to think about this today. Are your lives reflecting the orderliness of the gospel. The word cosmos means order. So it's not just that we become orderly with respect to um, our moral lives. We're to become orderly 
making right decisions and orderly in our lives. And that is reflected then in how we keep our property, how we keep our houses, how we keep our appearance. It's all part of reflecting the image of Christ in whose image we're being conformed. That's the first thing. But the second thing to think about is, and I mentioned last week we would talk about this, when you understand this class of people, it also helps you understand the wisdom we must have in diaconal ministry. Yes, indeed. Often our hearts, if we haven't hardened too much, will break when a person is on the street uh, begging for, for money or whatever, and sometimes they'll have a baby with them. That's what the gypsies do. and They actually lend babies so they can carry a baby with them out where they're going to beg. Um, but uh, to borrow a phrase from Paul about widows, who are widows indeed, there are poor who are poor indeed, true, truly impoverished people in God's providence. And they're poor because of their own sinful decisions and who milk that existence. And as a church, we must turn our attention to those who are the poor indeed. We must exercise wisdom as deacons. We must be able to come alongside of them, understand their plight, listen to them, help them get their feet on the ground with job training and, and whatever, but with the gospel and orderness. The other class of people, uh, at this point, we must begin with them about their decisions and what do they really want out of life. And if God is convicting them and bringing them out of that, then yes, we can come alongside of them we want to because we do have compassion on them as well. But we must be wise. And when we have deacons, they will be wise. Uh, we will use uh, actually references and cross-checks when people come to us for help. And that other class of person, you'd be shocked at what they will say to you when you don't help them. In, in Houston, because Covenant Presbyterian Church, this is the day of Yellow Pages. I know you boys and girls don't know what Yellow Pages are, but anyway, this was how you found churches, restaurants, and whatever. And uh, because we're kind of top of the alphabet, we were constantly getting calls from people. And so we would interview them, and we would come alongside of them. And those that were inveterate in their choices, you don't help them, they begin to curse you. Because they're just there for a, for a handout. And so we had to be wise in our ministry in the church as well. Good stewards of God's resources. So that's the character of uh, the persecutors, of the Christian, of Job, of you and me. Well, look at then the acts of persecution. And, and they're twofold. Uh, uh, malice with contempt and violence. Malice with contempt so we read in verse 9, Now I've become their taunt, and I've become a byword to them. Taunt is song. Uh, Psalm 69, 12, it's it, same words. It's the song of the drunkard at the gate who mocks King David. So Job now, they're making up little ditties about Job. They're singing now around their campfires uh, these uh, songs that mock Job. He becomes a byword to them. They look down on him. This class of people. Ha! Job is below us. Look what, what he's become. And so they mock him. They abhor him in verse 10. And actually stand aloof. Those who would shrink away from his presence, who would stand in respect when he came into the gates, now stand and lord it, lord it over Job. In fact, they would not refrain from spitting on his face. Which is... By far, 
the most reprehensible form of contempt that I can imagine. Now, how could this happen to Job? Well, verse 11. Because he, because God loosed, bowstring, but I think the better word is his cords. God loosed his cords or loosed my cords. The ESV has it, my here. The American Standard has his. It's end of the day the same thing. God took away the covering. God loosed the cords and allowed them, these wicked people, uh, to attack Job. Um, God cast off their bridle so they had no longer any restraint. But you notice it is of God. He loosed the bow or the uh, cord and afflicted me. You see, even in the midst of, of Job's complaining, and he'll come and he'll say some things in the next half of this chapter that are very wrong. And Elihu and God will reproach him, convict him of these things. But he understood something that the great majority of our Christian friends don't grasp today. That God is behind all of this. He understood what David would later say. How do I know that God is not speaking to me through this? He knew that Shemai could not curse him if God had not been behind him and allowed him to curse him. And Job recognized that. And so this will help us. I'll come back to this. This will help us when we are abused at the hands of others um, to recognize that uh, there's nothing isolated, uh, that behind every uh, act is ultimately a divine cause. Yes, there are second causes and they're responsible, but there's a divine cause. We can rest in that as well. So the bridles cast off, though, they run roughshod over Job, and then they treat him uh, with great violence. So verse 12, on the right hand, and that's his right hand, the place of his dignity, they're brood, and this is a, a force, like a band of, 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 of an army. They thrust aside my feet and build up against me their way of destruction. They break my path. Have you seen those films where young hoodlums will trip the old or put blocks in front of people's feet? You know, the, the law warns against that. The law of God through Moses about putting obstacles and and hurting the blind and the poor. They were taking advantage now of this sick man and even trying to trip him up as he walked. At least that's what they would like to have done. And then notice, they profit from my destruction. Again, a difficult phrase to understand. It might mean that they furthered his destruction. It might mean as well that they were going to profit from his destruction. If you've read uh, Lemuz, the man that owned the uh, public house where um, became a persecutor as well of Jean Valjean. Um, it's a picture, and of course, this happens in that book, is everything that, so it's the end of Waterloo. And that man, coward, is going behind the army and picking the gold teeth out of the dead. He profited from their destruction. That's how he had the money to own a public house. And so these people would grab anything they could now. Uh, they wanted Job cast down and they would get what they could uh, from him. And notice that there's no restraint. Uh, and now we get the figure of an army making a breach in a wall. Uh, though a wide breach, they come. 
breaking down the wall. Amidst the tempest, they roll on. And we've all been horrified with the, the pictures from Libya where a dam breaks and destroys more than 20,000 people. That's the, the idea here, the, the force of, of these people in their attack on Job. And again, he summarizes in verse 15, Terrors are turned against me. He's absolutely terrorized and scandalized. They pursue my honor as the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. It's ephemeral. It's no more here today than the wind was. And so Job very graphically describes his horror and torment at being persecuted by such a wicked class of people. And we understand then a bit of what it means when I say that the wicked are going to persecute the righteous. Here is a pattern of it uh, in the book of Job. He gives us their character and what they do. But this has gone on throughout the history of the church. In Lamentation 1.7, Jeremiah laments, In the days of her affliction, that's the church, and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious things that were from days of old when her people fell into the hand of the adversary and no one helped her. The adversary saw her and they mocked at her ruin. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel expand on that. They tell us of the mockery and the plundery of Edom and Moab and Ammon when God's people were judged. Or fast forward years later, the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. And some people in the church actually preach the gospel in order to cause him greater grief. It is a reality, dear friends, that the wicked will take every occasion they can to persecute the righteous. And of course, the reason we read Matthew chapter 27 is that in our Savior, we find the most awful, graphic description of how the wicked will rise up against the most righteous, how they treated uh, the Son of God, who'd come out of love and compassion to save men from their sins, and they mocked him, and they beat him, and they spit on him, and they ridiculed him, and they killed him. And behind all that, he can say with Job, Oh Lord, you afflicted me. He hangs on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he had to be forsaken by the Father in order to satisfy the eternal justice of God and the damnation of sinners that he might deliver us from our sin. That he might be both just and the justifier of the unrighteous. As you look at the Savior, then you understand he saved you from wickedness. He saved you from the disorder of your sin, the disorder of your lives. And dear friends, you must be resting this morning in Christ alone, for there's no other hope. Apart from Christ, you are maybe not culturally, but spiritually just as bad as these people. For really what we see in them materially and culturally is, that, is the nature of every soul that's apart from Christ, isn't it? A disordered soul. It's lost, undone, full of hatred. But then, as we look at Job, he didn't know this at the time. 
But here in this suffering, do you see that God honored him and allowed him to be a type of Christ? He knew that at least when he went to heaven. And only one other man was ever honored in that fashion, and that was David. These two men, by God's appointment, uh, were established in the history of Revelation to give us the picture of what God was going to do with his son. And also to help us understand, because the account in Matthew it is so brief. But then you look, and the other day I was meditating, so many chapters about David's exile. Why is that necessary? Because God wanted us to understand that our Savior, through suffering and humiliation, only in that route could enter into his divine glory. And Job could never be delivered from his affliction until he'd reached the pit of persecution and affliction. Now, you and I cannot be types of Christ. But we can do what Paul says in our sufferings and fill up the afflictions of Christ for the church. I want you to think about this. That what Job describes here is it takes place in your life is an honor that God now has placed upon you to fill up what is lacking, what's appointed for the church of Christ in her afflictions and trials as she makes her way to heaven. So two practical lessons out of that. You men that will be ministers in church or elders, you need to understand that this is going to be your lot. You're going to work and pray with someone patiently and you finally come and you begin to try to speak to them about a sin in their life and they're going to turn on you like a wild lion. They're going to devour you. They're going to insult you. They're going to accuse you of everything imaginable. And you're going to have to take that. And you recognize in the process of that that you're in part filling up the appointed sufferings of Christ for his church and you comfort yourself in that reality. Second, all of us at times in our lives are going to be mistreated by people who are spiritually inferior to us. And what God wants you to learn is that that's true. You also are filling up the suffering of Christ church. And there'll be times when the Shemais of our lives speak to us that we will need to think with David. I need to be quiet. I need to listen. Because what's God saying to me in this? And not lash back. But humble yourself, even under those taunts and rebukes. And God will bless them to you. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that uh, this passage of Scripture, as difficult as it is, Lord, you teach us the reality of the suffering that will take place in our lives. It took place in the life of our Savior. And how we actually have a privilege now to fill up the afflictions of Christ for the church. Help us to approach our trials in this manner, knowing that the wicked will persecute the afflicted righteous. Let us then delight in Christ, our glorious and beautiful Savior, whose life became so disordered and so maligned that you might deliver us from the disorder of our sins. Oh, Lord, give us grace. Cause us to grow in holiness. Cause us to grow in order in our lives. 
And we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.